So I'm very happy to be here tonight and associated with all of you, some of whom I haven't seen in uh, in a while. And uh, tonight I'd like to speak uh, briefly from Upadesha Amrita, text one. I was uh, fortunate to be one of the first persons to read the manuscript of Prabhupada's edition of Upadesha Amrita, which I found in Prabhupada's Iskon Chicago temple. It had been left behind somehow, and it hadn't been published yet, and it wasn't even, I think, to the press. I found it. Prabhupada had been there, and I, apparently it was left behind. I found it, and I sat up and read it until well, till it was, was finished. <laughs> Quite a, a, a good book. And we know that Sri um, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu instructed Sri Rupa Goswami at Prayag. He met Rupa Goswami, of course, in West Bengal. And at that time he was living in householder life with his elder brother Sanatan, nephew Jiva Goswami, brother, third brother of the two Rupa Sanatan Balaba. But after they joined the the group of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu officially and left home and became traveling mendicants, we know that Mahaprabhu met with Rupa Goswami in, at Prayag. So Mahaprabhu was in, in Vrindavan. He had longed to go to Vrindavan since the day that he himself took sannyas and many impediments came in his path that um, stopped him from going. Impediments which were largely uh, the affection of his own devotees who didn't want to be in his absence for that uh, long of a period of time that it would have taken him to walk to Vrindavan and when would he come back and would he ever come back? Because Vrindavan residence there is, is the uh, is the ideal of the Gaudiya Vaishnavas. That was the one, the forest, that uh, the mendicant Sri Krishna Chaitanya wanted to enter and never come out of. But he did come out, he did go there eventually, and he did come out, and one of the reasons, hidden reasons that he came out was because Rupa Goswami was on his way there, and he couldn't wait until he got there to meet with him again, so... For different external reasons, Mahaprabhu was, of course, lost to himself there in Vrindavan and appeared to be a danger to his own self, falling in the Jumuna uh, in a swoon and almost drowning and so forth. And So his attendants at the time, he had by that time collected about four people who were associated with him personally, and two had come from Bengal, Balabhadra, and one assistant, and two picked up in Vrindavan and Mathura, they uh, conspired together to take him out of Vrindavan, to save him from from himself, so to speak, from his own ecstasy. But uh, they took him to 
Prayag, and there he met Rupa Goswami. So he had some eagerness to meet with Rupa Goswami, who was the principal voice, really, of, of Chaitanya Dev for his conceptions and that which he wanted to distribute to the world. And there at Prayag, he poured so much theoretical knowledge into the ear and heart of Rupa Goswami. And more than that, he empowered him spiritually to uh, represent that. And uh, we study the Chaitanya Charitamrita. Those teachings are there. Mahaprabhu's teaching, Shiksha, to Rupa Goswami at Prayag. Many, many things are, are covered and represented in the works of Rupa Goswami and Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, principally, Ujjvalinamani, the sequel to that, and other books. But this is one book of just a few verses, Upadeshamrita, the nectar of instruction, instructions of immortal life, nectar, ambrosia, amrit, upadesh, amrit, that are not uh, clearly enunciated in Chaitanya Charitamrita, where the conversation between Rupa Goswami and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is represented by Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami. And so it's uh, there's another place that Mahaprabhu met with Rupa Goswami, and that is Jagannath Puri. And in the later years of his manifest lila and anti-lila, we find Rupa Goswami again comes to Puri and again meets with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And anti-lila of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is more lost to himself, and his preaching has come to an end for the most part. And... Um, He's involved in his bhajan life, cultivating the intense feelings of love and separation for Krishna that Srimati Radharani embodies. So very, very esoteric, very, very deep. And some saints have envisioned that it was at this time, somewhere in this leela, on the shore of the, the ocean, Mahaprabhu sat in the evening as the sun was setting and what we know to be Upadesh Amrita, the gist of that came from him and was heard by Rupa Goswami and represented in this text. Mahaprabhu was sitting on the shore the sun is setting into the ocean the ocean is moving and waves pounding on the beach like an emotional heart the ocean representing the very heart of, reflecting the very heart of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and the waves pounding on the shore, paying obeisances repeatedly to Krishna, regard, trying to approach Krishna and just crashing on the shore and dissipating. But wave after wave after wave, Mahaprabhu's heart is like that, unsettled, feeling separation from Radha, like oceanic his heart is, full of all types of sentiments of love for Krishna. And in such a trance of ecstasy, these uh, verses, the gist of these verses came out in the very receptive ears of the devotees. You can imagine when he would go into a trance, where he would go, how deep into Krishna would go, what would, would he come out ever again, they wondered. Sarup Damara would sing a song, Ramananda Rai would sing a song to augment his sentiments and gradually try to bring him to external consciousness in a way that he would not be upset. If he came out too suddenly, as they had in the past, brought him out too quickly, and he would criticize, oh, 
somebody made a, they were chanting Nam Sim Kirtan to bring him out loudly. He said, oh, somebody made a loud noise and disturbed my experience. <laughs> and this was the chanting of Sarup Damodar. So well, where was he? How deeply was he lost in, in love of Krishna that the Krishna Sankirtan of Sarup Damodar would just sound like noise to him. So carefully and expertly, artfully, very uh, acquainted as they were with all of the emotions of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, they would sing songs of Chandidas and and Jaidev and other such very rasic uh, literatures. And so coming out to some extent, these things came, these instructions. And here in Rupa Goswami has compiled the gist of that in this book. And it takes us from the beginning of what we'll call our progress in bhakti and enable us to really enter the house of bhakti, to stand, I should say, firmly on the stage on which the, the drama of Krishna Leela is performed from that stage to all the way to the end, to fully participating in that. So very, very valuable instructions. And coming at that, such a time of Mahaprabhu's deep penetration, so, that, so they should be very much taken to heart, all of them. And the first verse I want to speak on tonight is very pertinent to all of us. And we should remember now where this has come from, deep within the heart of, of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So the lower things are part of the higher experience. As I said, there's a stage to use the poetic language of Om Vishnupad Bhakti Raksakshidade Goswami Maharaj on which the drama of Krishna Leela is performed. And we have to be become acquainted with that stage. We have to stand firmly on that stage. Not be shy to get on stage. It's like when you get on stage, then you, everyone is there, everyone can see you. You cannot hide. So the stage on which the drama of Krishna Leela is performed is like that. No hiding. Everything out of the closet. <laughs> there. Stand naked before everyone and say, this is what I'm about. I'm a devotee of Krishna. Rupa Goswami says, Vachu Vegam, Manasakrodha Vegam, Jibha Vegam, Kudura Pashta Vegam, Hetan Vegan Yogashaheta Dhira, Sarbam Opimam Pritivim Sasishat. Prabhupada's translation. A sober person who can tolerate the urge to speak, the mind's demands, the actions of anger and the urges of the tongue, belly, and genitals is qualified to make disciples all over the world. So we have to remember, as I've explained, the context in which this verse is coming. It talks basically, ostensibly, about controlling the very the urges of the, of the mind and related to the mind, speech, and the force of anger, and the body in a threefold way, in terms of the tongue's uh, tendency to taste, and the need to taste and eat, and thus the urge of the belly, and the urge to procreate. This way he's talked about, largely about the subtle body and the gross body, and in terms of controlling these basic urges, these influences, urges that we're all quite accustomed to. And he's saying that one who can control them he can be a guru. But the context in which this verse is appearing, I've already explained. Mahaprabhu is not talking just about sense control 
he's talking about the high ideal of Brajbhakti to Rupa Goswami. So someone in the context of that culture, Krishnanushilanam, Shuddha-bhakti, pure devotion, who can control all these urges, that kind of person can be a guru. There may be other types of people that control these urges by other means. Yoga, yoga is the most sophisticated material technology, subtle material technology for controlling the, these urges, very sophisticated. The path of jnana, introspection, the cultivation of knowledge. There are other artificial ways to control these urges by taking in intoxicants. The mind sometimes can be focused. So there are different ways to control the senses. Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, Raso Varjam Raso Pyasya Param Dishtvani Vartate. He says, really to control these senses you have to get a higher taste. He's answering that because Arjuna is wondering, well, if somebody, what if somebody just um, controls their senses by some artificial method, by restraint? Does that make him a self-realized soul? Somebody asked me the other day that about taking certain kinds of drugs and how they might be helpful for controlling the mind and, and so forth. And was that was this? They were, these were prescribed drugs and so forth. I told her that if a doctor prescribes drugs, then probably you should take them, and it will be helpful to you. But this is not what we're talking about when we talk about controlling the mind, controlling the senses. And I said, but it helps me to control my mind, my senses. I said, yeah, but that's not exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about the desires that give rise to those urges that are in, they're in the heart. The medicine doesn't affect the heart. It doesn't, it doesn't clean the heart. It's a kind of ignorance it causes us to be under this influence, ignorance of identification with matter. It causes us to think that by pursuing such urges, what I'm really interested in, being happy, that will be accomplished. So we have to go to the root. The root is ignorance. That has to be uprooted. So, again, the culture of knowledge, that's, that is a powerful way for controlling the senses. But in yoga, as I say, far more than other more artificial means. But... Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's idea is something different. Narada told that, oh, by yoga, sankhya, again, there are attempts to control the senses, but Mukunda Sevaya, he said, but this is all artificial. By service to Mukunda, oh, all these things are accomplished automatically. By bhakti, the senses and these urges are automatically controlled. So just do bhakti. This is the teaching, but now what does it mean? Because we are all doing bhakti, but we might find that these urges are not under our control. Under our control means we're coming out from underneath their grip and we're finding something beautiful about ourselves that makes our sense of self, based on identification with those urges, look kind of uh, unbecoming in comparison and unhappy. In comparison, what does Krishna say about the objects of the senses? Dukkha yonayevate. It's like uh, wombs that are pregnant to give birth. Uh, what would they give birth? Dukkha yonayevate. Misery. Uh, so we think that by gratifying the senses we become happy, but the, the teaching is, oh, it works quite quite the opposite. The kind of happiness by 
foregoing such sense indulgence, inordinate sense indulgence. There's a place for sense indulgence in bhakti. So anyway, how do, what does it mean? We are all doing, but we're still uh, doing things that are also unbecoming. We're doing bhakti, but we're not finding all the, of the beauty that is uh, ourself, the soul, that thing that is so attractive, to, even to Krishna is attractive to, to ourself. We want to attract others to ourselves by pursuing these urges. Krishna become attracted to us if we forego them in the context of loving him. So bhakti is the way to control these as a byproduct of its culture, that Krishnanushilanam. But again, what does it mean? And this verse is telling us much about that. This verse is not, it's talking about bhakti, but it's talking about, again, that stage on which the drama of Krishna Lila, Krishna Bhakti, Param Bhakti, Bhakti proper, is performed. And what is that stage? It's called Sharanagati, surrender. We hear this word so many times. You should surrender, Prabhu. (laughs) 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 And do it my way. (laughs) But what does it mean? People ask it, how do I surrender? It's a rather kind of like abstract term. Surrender. It's like wave a white flag, all right, I I give up. I'm surrendered. I think like that. We think like that sometimes. With the, the teaching, the writings of the of the uh, charges have explained this in some detail, to our benefit. Thakur Bhakti Vinod has certain songs about Sharanagati. He's drawn from the Tantra. Rupa Goswami gives the term in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. Of course, it's there in Gita also. Sarva Dharman Pratyajamami Kam Sharanam Raja Aham Tam Sarva Papidu Moksha Yishami Masuch. And appropriately placed. What does Krishna say before that? In Gita, he reiterates the conclusion of Gita that came in the ninth chapter. Say it. We know this verse. After saying that second time, a little bit differently than the first time, with some emphasis, the second time with regard to his love for his devotees, immediately after saying that, he gives like a caveat, like a footnote, Sarvadharman put it, because in that verse that we all just recited, Krishna is talking about bhakti proper. Always think of me. This is what is represented in the gopis. They try not to think about Krishna unsuccessfully. Their minds are so absorbed. If any little thing gets in our way, immediately thinking of Krishna is displaced. But the gopis who tried not to think about Krishna, because he was so cruel in leaving them, and they can't get him off their mind. They're even seeking counseling, how to forget about Krishna. <laughs> Psychological counseling, and unsuccessful. They're uh, neurotic, and uh, what's that word? Um, dysfunctional. dysfunctional. <laughs> Psychologically dysfunctional. And that's our ideal. Of course, that's a different kind of psychological dysfunctional than most of us experience at the present, to whatever extent we do. So, what does Krishna say? He says, he's talking about bhakti, and then he says, he talks then about the stage on which we must come in order to really do bhakti, and that is sharanagati, surrender. Sharanam. He says, 
surrender. Sharanagati is a term found in the Ramanuja Sampradaya and from the Tantric literature, the Pancharatra literature, Rupa Goswami cited in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu in his uh, explanation of Vaidhi Bhakti, Sadhan Bhakti, Vaidhi Bhakti. And it's very important to us. It's described in the Tantra as being sixfold. Anukulyasya sankalpa partikulyasya vajanam rakshikshatri vishvashvo gupritve varanam tatha atmanikshepakarpanye sadvidha sharanagati. Sixfold. First two aspects of this. Anukul, particul. Anukul means favorable. Particul means unfavorable. Sharanagati in this regard means what? Accepting things that are favorable for Krishna's service and rejecting things that are unfavorable. This verse is speaking about Shraddha in its characteristic of Sharanagati. You've heard the word Shraddha, faith. We've heard that Bhakti begins with faith. Who has faith can tread the path of Bhakti. We've heard that. Audo Shraddha, that Bhakti begins with faith. But we've also heard other things about faith. We've heard that, for example, Sri Marsh liked to say that where we want to go, that is a land of faith, planets of faith, where there's no doubt. Faith is everything. The scripture says, uh, what is that? A person is his faith. Shraddha person is his faith. And who has divine faith, that is what makes up that whole spiritual sky. Like when we have faith, what, what does it mean? It means we don't have doubts so that we can proceed happily. So there everything is moving happily, freely, without any reservation. Here we proceed with caution, hopefully. That means we filter things through our intellect and we proceed with caution. We only let something go into our heart that makes sense to us. Then we let it go in. We're moving in speaking the language of logic, common language. But uh, Mahaprabhu is very tricky, and he come as Krishna in a devotional form to give the highest love. So he can get through the guard of our intellect. His acharyas, his devotees are speaking very logically and with scriptural backing, can appeal to our sensibility about bhakti in so many ways, speaking the language of logic. But couched in that, they are not theoreticians only and logicians. And they readily admit that the logic that supports their experience, oh, it has its limitations. Why does it have its limitations? Because their experience is beyond the limits of logic. So to speak about it in logic is, logically is, is difficult. After all, life is not logical. We want to make sense out of everything. But life doesn't make sense. Does it make sense that by giving something away, you will get something? No. But that's how life works. That's our practical experience. When we give something away, it is said, you receive. And what you receive, you can't even hold it up and show it to anybody. Here it is. I got it. Here's the proof. It's invisible, but it's real and tangible. By giving of ourselves, the fullness of ourselves is experienced. This is mystical, but we don't think of it as such because it just goes on. Meanwhile, we're trying to make sense out of everything. But what the world is telling us, reality is beyond sense. It's sensible, 
It's common sense in one sense, but common sense is uncommon. <laughs> A rare commodity. Common sense is uncommon? Very uncommon. Real common sense is uncommon. As Shudermarsh gave example once of Alexander the Great, and he conquered India and so many lands, and it was said that whoever could undo, I think it was called the Gordian Knot, that he would be the conqueror of the land, the emperor of the land. And so, so many people came and they tried, big, strong kings and warriors, to untie that Gordian knot. And the young Alexander came and he looked at it, thought for a moment, pulled out his sword and cut it. And everybody said, oh, I could have done that! <laughs> but nobody thought of it. It was common sense, but it was uncommon. Apples are falling from trees all the time. But one fellow, Newton, thought about it. What does it mean? It was just common sense that he used to discover and explain the principle of gravity. What goes up must come down, or however he explained it. He saw the apple fall from the tree, so how he thought about it. So common sense is, is uncommon. And uh, this bhakti is something like that. It's full of common sense. It's very practical. But the practical is, is actually mystical. It escapes us. And we try to see everything through the veil, the, the burden of logic and the language of logic and reason and everything must be dissected and make sense. Then the mystery, the poetry of life will vanish before us. Now, again, it's not that we aren't logical and reasonable and, and we're speaking logically. And as I said, our charges do so, our spiritual teachers and so forth. But the motivation for such is an experience that exceeds the limits of logic, and that experience comes through. And even though we guard ourselves with logic, it enters our hearts anyway and captures us, and creates some capacity for resonating with what they're saying, and suddenly the logic of the bhakti and all starts to make sense to us. But then we think it makes perfect sense, and we think we'll conquer everybody by just by explaining it. <laughs> and we just gather up the theory and read so many books and so forth and then go and regurgitate that and and we do capture some people's attention and so forth for a while and then we lose interest ourselves <laughs> and those people go, what happened? I thought that you were into this and uh, I met you and uh, remember me? I, and look at me now, I look like this. You, know, you look like I look like... So it's more than that. It's applying those things practically and with common sense. That's what practically to apply them means also. Because the theory is just that. It's a theory and it has some practical application and there will always be some divergence between the theory and the practical application. Some apparent divergence. When in reality the practical application is really fulfilling what the theory means in a given instance and circumstance, time and so forth. We have to be practical, full of common sense. So all our great teachers are like that, broad-minded. And they speak very strongly about certain points, and they may at other times speak uh, differently about the same points in different times and different circumstances and so forth. So this is a very subtle thing, a little difficult to grasp. We have to pay close attention, and we have to really give our heart to this. And that's what this verse is talking about. It's talking about that first limb of sharanagati. Sharanagati means really, as I'm saying, to be surrendered, it means to have your heart in the right place. Then bhakti will manifest there. 
and then you can execute bhakti. If your heart is in the right place and you can do the, the practices of devotion and it will be fruitful. If your heart is not in the right place, you can do those practices and end up losing interest. And then finding, oh, the, the gaps in the logic and the reason, which is inevitably going to be there in any explanation by anyone coming from the land of faith into the land of doubt, the land of spiritual experience, to speak about it. As I said, it, it escapes words. It's beyond reason. We try to reason about it and speak about it in such a way that people can understand it to some extent, but they have to put it into practice. They have to embrace it. They have to give their heart to that. That's just what it's really calling for. It's not just calling for our, our mental attention. And very trickily, of course, the, the wonderful thing about these advocates of bhakti is while they get our mental attention, they also get inside without us knowing and activate our, our heart, which is atrophied. So this kind of company is good, good, good company to get together like this and talk about these things. Even if it doesn't make sense, it will have some effect upon us. So here, Rupa Goswami is talking about putting your heart in the right place, being on the stage of Sharanagati in terms of Pratikul. Pratikul means giving up those things that are not favorable to the cultivation of bhakti. So Vachu Vegam, Manasakoda Vegam, Jiva Vegam, Udurapasta Vegam. He mentions these six urges. The urge of the mind, the urge to speak, the force of anger, the urge of the tongue to taste, the urge of the belly, and the urge of the, of the genital. He says, these things have to be brought under control. You cannot remain under their control and have bhakti. And therefore, in the context of bhakti, of the culture of devotion, these things are accomplished. How is that? By actually standing naked on the stage on which the drama of bhakti is performed, and that is sharanagati, the stage of surrender. So, sharanagati is the characteristic of faith. Faith means, okay, you have bhakti for bhakti. A sadhu has awakened faith in you and Krishna. Simply by serving Krishna, my life will be sublime. I have faith. This is so. I have faith, so I can perform bhakti. Everything should work now. I'll chant. My senses will all become controlled, and I'll go back to Godhead. But it, it's, it's we're finding it takes. It's not working so well sometimes. That's because we don't understand fully these concepts, these terms. Yes, shraddha is the beginning. A sadhu awakens faith in us. That's the beginning of shraddha. But that shraddha is kind of we call it general shraddha in God. It's faith in Krishna, yes, that's true, but it's not developed. If it's the beginning, it's it, and faith is the beginning, as I'm saying, and as Sridhar Mar said, as I quoted, the very land of where we want to go is made up of that stuff. Then we can understand there must be a development of that faith that is what bhakti is about. So just because I have faith in the beginning, that is called komal shraddha, tender faith. Tender faith. We have to make the faith firm and thick and strong through different stages of its culture. And when it becomes firm rather than soft and tender, then it's, oh, it's, it's getting done. Like in cooking or something. It's getting offerable. So Kamal Shraddha moves up to the stage of Nishta. Nishta means firm faith. The faith becomes firm there. And just after that comes Ruchi, some positive development, some semblance of what my life in the land of bhakti, in the land of faith, is all about. 
where everyone moves freely, as I said, and happily, without any reservation, spontaneously, not proceeding with caution. It's the homeland of the heart. That ruchi is the beginning, the beginning of what that positive side of bhakti is about. There's a negative side of bhakti, and that's largely being discussed here in this verse. Oh, controlling the senses, giving up unfavorable things, and so forth. Some favorable things in that context, too, accepting good company, accepting a guru, and following his instructions, and so forth. Practicing, making the, the practice fixed and strong and un, unbreakable, and so forth. And from that point, softening comes. It's very interesting, because from becoming very firm, one becomes very soft again. <laughs> so when you make your faith, which is what you are, very, very firm, then it starts to soften. You start to soften, really, in relation to Krishna, and some liking for all these things about Krishna, topics about Krishna, Krishna himself. Not just the tattva about Krishna, the philosophy about Krishna, but Krishna himself comes likable to you, attractive, and in a particular way. This is what Ruchi is about, the dawning of what, of just, uh, it's not bhava bhakti, but the beginning of what that bhava is about, a particular sentiment for Krishna. So faith is fully developed there, and therefore the, there is some direct connection with the land of faith is starting to happen. Otherwise the correct connection is a little bit indirect. I'm dealing with getting things out of the way and making my practice strong and, and so forth. Anukul. Anukul means accept things that are favorable, reject things that are unfavorable. In Sharanagati, this means like taking a vrat, a vow. I'll do like this, I won't do like that. Guru may ask us to accept the vow. So we try our best to do that. This is part of Sharanagati. I try my best. I always endeavor with, to my earnest and most to do that. Even you may be sometimes unsuccessful. Circumstance may arise. But you try your best. Then you're doing anukul, pratikul. You are embracing that aspect of Sharanagati. Probably you still say, don't do this, this, this. You promise? Yes. Amen. And all of you, we are very strict on that. Very strict on that. This is Sharanagati. And then, Rakshikshatiti Vishvashvo. Vishvas. Vishvas is a, is a nice word. It means firm confidence. Confidence. It acknowledges a kind of a development of faith. Vishvas. Firm faith. Confident. Rakshikshatiti Vishvashvo. That I have confidence. Krishna is my Rakshak, my protector. Krishna will protect me. I don't need protection from anyone else. In any circumstance, <coughs> Krishna will take care of me. Will protect me. And go varanam tata. Next thing. And I won't seek maintenance through anyone else. Krishna will maintain my life. I have a confidence in that. It's a kind of a non-dependence on anyone else for my sustenance. Then dainya, humility, thinking I'm insignificant. This is the reality. I'm insignificant. And all this is coming by grace and atmanikshepa. Atman that is, many uh, vedan. This means I won't depend on anyone else. We talked about that. I'll only depend on Krishna. So this sharanagati is sixfold, but they're like, the first two is, is one. They're like five aspects of it. We should understand this. 
and understand that as much as this Sharanagati is showing in our person, in our character, that what this is, this Sharanagati, is the characteristic of Shraddha, of this divine faith. So that means when it's fully developed, when the Sharanagati is fully manifest, faith is full. Faith is the liege of bhakti. So when that seed is very potent, from Ado Shraddha to Ruchi, one comes to that stage. And then once Sharanagati is such that the drama of Krishna Leela is about to be performed, you can understand, it's going to happen. Everything's in place now. Things are in place. I've got the stage up. I've stood on the stage. I've bared myself. This, you can understand that this Sharanagati requires it, especially this beginning. Here we're talking about giving up unfavorable things, accepting favorable things, especially giving up unfavorable things. Oh, how difficult that is. You have to be thoroughly honest. You have to understand, unless we do this, to the extent we do this, that drama of bhakti will never be performed. The stage won't be in place. So this verse is speaking about that and about this development of Shraddha to its fullest. The two, as I say, go hand in hand. Sharanagati is the characteristic of Shraddha and Shraddha is the beginning and the end of bhakti. You can understand there's a development of faith. In Bhagavatam there's a nice statement. At the end of Rasalila, Parikshit Maharaj asks Sukadev, how can Krishna, you know, who's like the emblem of dharma be dancing in the in the forest at night with these young girls how do i reconcile that and he gives different answers but one of the things he says the concluding verse he says vikriditam brajavadubir idam chavishnu shadhan vitam mushanayad tabarnayat yeah he said well first of all that's vishnu you should understand krishna is vishnu so krishna is god god can do things other people can't so his position is different from his vantage point, is different from yours. He can be involved in things that appear like the things that you're involved in, but because his consciousness is entirely different, the result is different and the whole affair is, is different. He's Vishnu, he says, Vikriditam Brajabadu. Who's playing Vikriditam with the Brajabadu, the wives of, of Braj, this Krishna, he's Vishnu. You should understand that, he says. He's God. And Shraddhan Vitaha Anu. He says, a person who has very strong faith, full faith, Shraddhan Anu. Anu means following. It means faith that's derived from following Guru Parampara, the Gurus in a succession, properly following. It means who's a Sharanagata, whose faith is full. Shraddhan Anu. That kind of person, what? If he hears about this Krishna dancing with the gopis, at that stage, if he just preoccupies himself with that, at that stage, no other concern, bhakti will come into his heart. And everything will go away. All calm, crowed, all this will completely go away. Completely. If he can check these things to the point that this verse is talking about, who can control them, who can tolerate them, means they're calling on me, but I'm not going there. Who can tolerate, in the culture of bhakti, can come to the point of fully developing his faith and sharanagati, and 
if at that point, at Ruchi, when his faith is very firm, like in Nishta, that kind of faith, fully absorbed, then he can just sit and hear those pastimes. He needs nothing else. And that drama of Krishna Lila will actually start the beginning of what it means to dance on the stage of his heart. It will develop into attachment, asakti, and then enter into bhavana. Then, then it's just like the time, it's time, the time is right, the stage is set, we're waiting for him to appear, we know he's coming, we've got confirmation, he'll be here momentarily. Like that. <laughs> and knowing that, you become more and more attached to the idea. You're so attached to that, so intense, then he actually comes. Bhava bhakti. The drama begins. Before that, you can glimpse, you can even look, but you can't participate. In Bhava Bhakti, then start to participate. Mahabharata chanted this verse, Vikriditam Vrajabhadubir idam chavishnu shadhanbitam nushanayadadvarnayatya. Where did he quote that verse? In Chaitanya Charitamrita, he's represented through the pen of Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami as speaking this verse to one Pradyumna Mishra. What was the occasion? Pradyumna Mishra had gone to see Rai Ramananda. He approached Mahaprabhu, please, let me hear some Harikata talks about Krishna. Wow, that is so sweet. And you have such love for Krishna. Say something. Oh, Mahaprabhu said, I know nothing about Krishna. If you want to hear Harikata, you go to Ramananda Roy. So he went to Ramananda Roy, thought, I'm going to see a great devotee. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu himself has recommended him. I will go and see him. I will ask to hear about Krishna from him. He went, and Ramananda Roy was in the in the Jagannath temple in one side room, and he was teaching girls who were wedded to the temple, so to speak, how to dance and make various bodily gestures that corresponded with sentiments of love. And Pradyumna Mishra thinking, what's going on here? This looks a little suspect. Ramananda was training those girls. They were ordinary girls in many respects. He was training them to dance before the deity. And he had such love for Krishna. All the bhavas, emotions, sentiments of love, he wanted to teach them how to express that in bodily language. And Jagannath would understand it. It was very esoteric what he was doing. And he was very, very intimately uh, associated with them, training them. Sometimes he would massage their legs and so forth. And Pradyumna Mishra saw this and he came back to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and he said, did you, who did you say to see? <laughs> who was that? <laughs> well, you've seen him, huh? What was he doing? He said, I couldn't quite understand uh, what he was doing. Uh, he was doing this. Mahaprabhu said, see, that's why I sent you to him. <laughs> said, I'm a sannyasi, he said. And if I think even of, a, of a, a stone image of a woman, my mind will become agitated. Or a wooden image, my mind will become agitated. I'll have to check it and tolerate that. So powerful is the force of attraction between man and woman. He was a renunciate. So he spoke like this, humbly about himself. He said, but Rai Ramanan, look at his position. He can massage the legs of these uh, devis. And his mind is never disturbed. He's only thinking about Krishna at every moment. What is his position? Then he quoted this verse. The Kriditam Vajrapadudhiridam. He said, he said I, I can't understand it. What is the position of Ramananda Roy? But I can tell you something from Shastra that I think corresponds with it. This is what he said. Then he quoted this verse. So we shouldn't misunderstand that verse. Oh, I have Shraddha. 
Verse says those who have Shraddha, they can just sit and hear about Radha and Krishna's pastimes and then all lust will go away and bhakti will come in their heart fully. It says bhakti will come in your heart, then lust will go away. So I don't have to make any effort to give up lust and greed and all these things. I'll just hear about Krishna's Rasalila, the most esoteric pastimes of Krishna, and bhakti will come and these things will go away automatically. And we find people doing that, and those things never go away. Because bhakti has never come. Because bhakti will only come in the heart of a Sharanagata. And a Sharanagata has to be think about all these things. You have to think about these urges. In the context of being a Sharanagata, he doesn't have to think about controlling them. He has to think about being a Sharanagata. This is an aspect of bhakti, an important aspect of bhakti. As I said, it's the very characteristic of Shraddha. So he has to think about that. He has to think, I have to control my mind, I have to control my senses. You have to think, I have to be a Sharanagata. You have to keep my vow to my guru. Keep this in place. And these things he told me are not favorable. And he is representing Krishna. So for, in Krish, for Krishna's service, to be a Sharanagata, I'll do this. This is how he, by embracing bhakti, doesn't have to worry about controlling the senses. This aspect of bhakti, being a Sharanagata, therefore we stress, Shraddha and Sharanagati. First, emphasize this. When you come to Ruchi Bhakti, then now you can talk about all those topics without disturbance. And that will augment your bhakti. You will talk about all Krishna Lila and all details that correspond with your Ruchi, your particular taste coming in a particular way. At that time, all that talk, that will be very useful. Before that, how useful will that be? It may be counterproductive. It may be counterproductive in a crude way in ordinary people if they hear those high topics about Krishna. If someone just has a little little faith and not develops faith, then it may be a problem. They may undergo like an intellectual sleight of hand or by gathering information be deceived into thinking, see, I'm a rasic bhakta. I've got so much information I can reject my guru who doesn't talk about those things. He didn't talk about all those things. And now I've heard about them. I know all those high topics. Hey, I know more than him. (laughs) Is he even the bhakta? Because this is what bhakti is all about. All these high things. The scriptures are full of these statements. Just hearing about Krishna, it's positive. We do bhakti. And automatically the senses are controlled. But his senses never come under control for some reason. And his guru who's mum about all those topics, like Prabhupada was characteristically, for the most part, largely, if you'd ask him, Prabhupada, why does Krishna do this? And, and he said, why don't you go there and ask him? <laughs> <laughs> the implication being, I've shown you how to go there. That is Shraddha and Sharanagati. Embrace that. Then when the stage is in place, yeah, Krishna will come and dance on your heart and he'll tell you why he does that. And other things that he does that even I don't know about. Such is the nature of Krishna Leela. So don't skip over this. Don't misunderstand what it is, Sharanagati, what Shraddha is. When the development of Shraddha is full, characterized by a full expression of Sharanagati, oh, then, hearing all those topics, that will be what is important for you now. So to advance means to do what's relevant to us and pertinent to our stage that we're in to call our progress, not to do something that's relevant to someone else's, because that's a higher thing. I want to do the high thing. This is, of course, uh, we, we like to purchase when we don't even have the bank balance. It's our economy. We have a credit card. We can get it now. 
You can't get bhakti like that. You can think you got it, but you'll be bankrupt, actually. You'll end up spiritually bankrupt. So don't do like that. Follow very closely the advice of your guru. There's a nice story in this connection how in Navadvip Dham, at the time of Jagadandas Babaji, a great siddha, and Bhakti Thakur and others, some devotees were initiated by Jagannathas Babaji. And when they went and told their friends, oh, we, we took diksha from Jagannathas Babaji, and then their friends said, oh, well, what is your swarup? What is your position in the Krishna Leela and so forth? Well, he didn't tell us that stuff. He didn't tell you? <laughs> Embarrassing. Uh, maybe you want to go and ask, and maybe you didn't really get initiated. Something missing there. What did he tell you? He told us to plant Tulsi and the sacred basil and, uh, and, and do these kind of basic things. And so their friends said, well, anyway, you know, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's a saint, but he, I guess he didn't really want to let you in on what it's really all about. So they became a little concerned. They went to Bhaktivinoda Thakur and said, you know, we were initiated by Jagannath Das Babaji, but he didn't give us these things. What did he tell you? He told us, plant Tulsi Bhakti, and said, oh, you got everything. <laughs> he tells you to do that, that is, you got something real. So much counterfeiting going on. So, and it's not hard to know if we're, we're accepting a counterfeit. Just be honest. This Rasa Bhakti, Bhakti Rasa, is very, very, very extraordinary thing. Very high thing. It makes Mukti look small. And people are striving in yoga and jnana to control the senses. It's to say, no, this is this is a secondary thing. This isn't like bhakti proper. This is well, it's part of sharanagati to do yeah, to be on a pretty cool, uh, reject things that are unfavorable. Yes. So how high is that bhakti? So do bhakti. Yes, everything will come. Do it as it is appropriate to your uh, own level of of eligibility. And therefore, we stress. This is the, the emphasis of Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasati Thakur, Bhakti Vinod Thakur, Shraddha and Sharanagati. Focus on these things. And Guru is there, he tell us, you like this, don't do like that. Focus all your energy there. Guru Bhakti, be a Sharanagata, and have confidence. This is, I'm giving the explanation. Why you should have confidence in that? How that will call your progress? How that will prepare the stage? Without that, then, you have an imposter. Not Krishna, not the real drama of Krishna Leela. Uh, counterfeit. So, here, the specific things that are mentioned then, control the mind and the speech and anger, as I said, this is more or less relative to the subtle body because what we speak about is what, we, what we've thought about and anger is a, a state of mind. So he's talking about the subtle body in terms of these three things. The tendency to speak, oh, we all want to speak and, and have ourselves heard. When I was young, much younger, about 20, 21, or 22, I became interested in spiritual life, very deeply interested. And I was living in the Santa Cruz Mountains at that time. And uh, this is just part of the story, of course, how I came to Prabhupada. But at that time, I began chanting in my mind the mantra, the Maha Mantra. I had read it on an incense pack. So I chanted and chanted. And I concluded that in my circle of friends, everyone was talking and what was behind their, the force behind it was the motive to have themselves heard, for the most part. I felt everyone's talking is tinged with just wanting to have themselves heard. And it's unbecoming, I thought. So I took a bow of silence, 
Monavrata. <laughs> I said, I would just chant the Hare Krishna mantra in my mind. And uh, that's how I conducted myself for some time. I eventually found out that there were things to talk about. <laughs> there are things to talk about. The absolute truth cannot be explained in words. That's true. But that means there's not enough that we can say about it. We can go on and on about Krishna forever. My bodies want to be silent. Monavrata. No speech. There is a fellow who lived in Santa Cruz. lives there now, I think, but he, he wasn't there when I was living there. In that area, at any rate, and he was uh, from Yoga Marg, Gyan Marg, and he had, he had a, he, he'd take a vow of silence. Monavrata. And so he would never say anything. Some of my godbrothers once went to, to visit him, and they said to him, you don't say anything. And he had a little blackboard. He said, yes. Chalkboard. He said, that's right. He wrote on there, that's right. Something like that. So then they said to him, our guru has taught us that better than not talking is to only talk about Krishna. They went and they challenged him like that. And then he wrote on that, is that what you do? And they all blushed because they knew they didn't only talk about Krishna. (laughs) 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 Shouldn't take this theory around and use it to to foster our ego. It's meant to efface our ego (laughs) and to dissolve that material ego. Yes, we should only talk about Krishna. I told him, you should have said no, but that is what our guru does. So you should come to him. I advise them like that. So, the urge to speak means not to speak about things that are not relevant to Krishna. Don't speak that Maya about philosophy. Rikki Siddhanta starts to talk or emphasize this in Prophet's commentary. He does as well. And any other useless topic. We have to talk about things practical to make our life work and so forth, obviously. But be careful with your, your words, your tongue. And it will affect your mind, what you talk about, what you think about, what you hear. Sometimes the mind is controlled by by sound, so what we hear also, and especially if we speak it, then it really affects the mind. So if we speak about Krishna, oh, that will affect our mind. We'll have to think, I better start doing these things that I'm talking about. So this is a good practice. So controlling the speech is about that. Controlling the mind, there's two aspects of the mind. One is it's just unbridled tendency, uh, and then that anger that comes in it, which is a result of it's being disturbed when obstacles are put in the path of my sense indulgence. So this way, I say anger is also related to mind. And then taste, to taste, the other function of the tongue, which is in relation to the body, now the gross body. So our solution is we should taste only things that are offered to Krishna. If in circumstance you cannot, you cannot, doesn't mean you you have to go and um, erect a little altar everywhere you go and make an offering and, and so forth. Offering to Krishna it has to be prepared in a certain way and so forth. So, some circumstances in our culture, this culture is not really set up for bhakti. So, <laughs> we have to deal with that. So, sometimes you may have to eat something. It's not offered to Krishna. So, you think, huh, my life I'm giving to Krishna. I'm a Sharanagata. I may have to work. Sharanagata can be a householder too. It doesn't mean it is a sannyasi. It will be applied appropriately as a householder. But I'm a Sharanagata. I work. Bhakti. This is what I'm about. 
Now, sometimes I have to eat something, I can't offer it, and it is, and it may be prepared by someone else. And so, I say, you just say, Sarirao Vidyajal, in this prayer of Bhakti Bhunavad. One of the functions of this, uh, this idea of taking prasad is to control the fastidious tongue. He says, very difficult to control Bhakti Vinod in the song, that tongue. So, you know, in days gone by, there weren't a lot of things to do. <laughs> the main things to do were to eat and to have sex. In times gone by, in our modern culture, there's a lot of things to do, to be preoccupied with. So we may find that in times gone by, a rich diet was just like, that's living. What did that guy say? Good good. And eat and live. Take butter or steel, but to get ghee, which is clarified butter, and, and eat. This is life. Then live. Charvak Muni. <laughs> this is cornerstone to his philosophy. So, a lot of people today, just for sensible reasons, think otherwise, and they they are careful about their diet, and they and they do control their taste because they don't want to be obese and have bad health and so forth and so on. So, one of the ideas behind the taking prasadam is verily that, to control the tongue, so that you don't become obese, and that you don't become unhealthy, and then you'll become uncontrolled. And so you may accomplish that to some extent by other means also. You won't get bhakti, like there's an other aspect of taking prasad, but prasad is something, it's, it's offered in a particular way, with, by a particular person, and that's prasad. So, like in some temples, they cook nice prasad, and offer that to the deity. And then there's a larger batch that's diminished in opulence that's <laughs> circulated to the prabhus, to, to, the, to the devotees. That's pretty standard. Prabhupada had that standard in Vrindavan at the Krishna Balaram Mandir. Because one of these things about taking prasad, as I mentioned, it's about controlling the tongue. And what we offer to Krishna is just, you know, the best. For Krishna, beg, borrow, or steal, and get ghee. And offer it to him. He has transcendental senses that can enjoy such things. He actually he enjoys the offering, of course, but what goes into the offering is taking the best of things, which we think are the best, and offering those for the pleasure of Krishna. Not because afterwards I'll get to eat it. <laughs> no, then we're, then we're, then we're, we're not going to get the full benefit. <laughs> so, you see, taking prasad is not about eating sumptuously and, and just gratifying the tongue. It's about controlling the tongue. So, subsensibility about the purpose of that has to be considered. Therefore, eating too much opulent prasad goes against this principle. It's unfavorable. That's, in, of course, an extreme sense. That In certain stages, then it's another thing. Sridhar Marsh once told the story when he joined the mission, and he was rather new in the mission, he got the service of distributing prasad in a line, in halaba, which is a suite, to uh, so many guests that were coming to the to the monastery for prasad. And so he, this one fellow came and he put halaba on his plate. Then about 20 minutes later, that fellow was there again for another plate. And so he said, he noticed him, and the guy noticed that he noticed him. She hesitated. Okay, he put it on his plate, because there's only so much to go around and so forth. And then, lo and behold, the guy came back for thirds. <laughs> and he kind of like put his charter up over his head, you know, he wouldn't be recognized. And so, but Shinamarsh was pretty astute, so he recognized him. He hesitated. And then a godbrother, Standing next to him, says, "Why are you hesitating?" He says, "This guy says this is his third time." 
And Sridhar Maharaj said, and my senior grandmother said, are you distributing food or are you distributing prasadam? <laughs> <laughs> this kind of eagerness, we want that. So on a lower stage, and Prabhupada used to do like that, eat as much prasadam as you can. He used to, have, <laughs> to tell us. He used to have, a, in New York, he said he had a bowl of, of sweets, gulab jamans, or they call it Iskon Bullets. <laughs> and if wherever you're feeling a little depressed, you just take one of those. <laughs> so he was being practical at the time. But we were supposed to grow beyond those initial beginning stages and understand some of the principle behind that and, and so forth. And it's about controlling the tongue. So we should offer to Krishna very nicely and then um, and everybody take a little bit of that Mahaprasad. Everything else is some kind of prasad. And if in the circumstances you can't offer anything, you think, I'm trying to surrender to Krishna, and I, even I have to keep my livelihood in this way, in this particular job, for example, I have to eat. Let me take something to eat. It's not prohibited food. And eat that and pray that the energy I get from that will be used to further my Krishna consciousness, not for anything else. You do like that. A little thought, thoughtfulness beforehand like this, then it won't uh, have an adverse effect upon you. But again, this is about sharanagati, so you have to to bring some restraint into your life. So controlling the tongue for tasting, and then the belly, and the tongue is said, it's in the middle here, so it pertains to the upper, the mind, and to the lower, to the body. So what you speak about, that will control the mind, what you taste, and what you avoid tasting, that will help to control the lower urges, of the body, the belly, and the genital. And there are prescriptions about this. Sexual activity should be under uh, under divine uh, auspices, uh, blessed married relationship, and with something higher in mind, like procreation, for example, uh, uh, these type of things. This urge, of course, the main urge that uh, is making the world go round. So in principle... If we were to be progressive and a Sharanagata, starting from a background like many of us may have come from, just touched by a sadhu, and for no other reason we're finding ourselves engaged in this bhakti, although we have absolutely no qualification and we have hundreds of disqualifications. So for such persons, there should be a generous way of uh, administering the uh, principles of bhakti incorporating them into into their, helping them incorporate them into their lives. So if controlling the genital, for example, is important, and incidentally, of course, this is universally accepted. Everyone accepts that sex should be restricted. Everybody, on some level. Everybody somewhere will draw the line and say, that you don't do. Somewhere they'll draw the line. Everybody has a line about this. So it's universally accepted. This principle, this urge in human life has to be regulated. So, then, in relation to bhakti, we get good guidance how to restrict that in a progressive way. Like, within a relationship, would be like, kind of the bottom line. <laughs> within, a, within, <laughs> within, a, within a relationship that is based on something more than just that urge. In this way, sensibly. And then, within the context of making spiritual progress, so if you if you think about the thing properly and exercise some common sense and so forth with good guidance, then gradually you'll be a sharanagata. These things will go away. You will get bhakti. So we seek in this the blessing of Rupa Goswami, who's given such nice verse. 
who had the ears to hear the nectar of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So I said, this is a very basic point, but it came from Mahaprabhu at such a spiritually emotional time in his life. So we should understand this is part of those emotions, a very big and important part of those emotions. So don't neglect these first few verses of Upadesh Amrita, the nectar of instruction. Shri Rupa Goswami. Rupa Goswami Prabhupada Ki Jai. Jai. Vaishnav Guru Parampara Ki Jai. Gaur Bhaktivinda Ki Jai. Sri Krishna Chandra Ki Jai. Sri Sri Radha Govinda Ki Jai. Gauranga Mahapukri Ki Jai. Sri Jagannathe Baladev Subhadra Maharani Ki Jai. Sri Nam Prabhu Ki Jai. Guru Vaishnav Guru Parampara Ki Jai. Sri Bhakti Bhadanda Swami Prabhupada Ki Jai. Bhakti Raksak Siddhiv Goswami Maharaj Ki Jai. Bhakti Siddhant Sarsti Thakur Prabhupada Shri Bhakti Vinod Paribar ki jai, Gaur Bhakti Vrindh ki jai, O Premanandi. Shri Bhakti Vrindh Paribar ki jai, Shri Bhakti Vrindh Paribar ki jai, Shri Bhakti Vrindh Paribar ki jai,